morning. My name is Marcus Wilson. I'm one of a member here and just happy to be bringing the word to you this morning. Uh, as we spoke from the parables, being able to, uh, to deliver a few of those actually this morning from, uh, from Matthew 13. But I want to start uh, this morning by talking a little bit about a, uh, a recent movie. Maybe not so recent, about 20 years ago, one of uh, Hollywood's kind of premier directors, a guy by the name of uh, Ridley Scott, decided he wanted to put together an epic of the Middle Ages. And so uh, in doing that work, he picked out a time frame to focus on, and that time frame was about the uh, end of the 12th century, which for the historians in the room would be the near the end of the Second Crusade. This is the point at which the European Christians have held the Muslim armies at bay for close to a century, claiming the supremacy over the Holy Land of ancient Israel, in particular, that most holiest of cities, Jerusalem, against the Muslim invaders who actually regarded that city holy in their own right. The time of the movie, uh, though there was a lot of fiction in the actual movie, but the time of the movie was set in the historical period during King Bradley IV sitting on the throne in Jerusalem. And King Bradley was famous as part of the legacy that held the city under Christian control. There was a tenuous treaty of peace with a sultan named Saladin, And if that treaty was undermined or broken, then there was fear that the city would be lost to the Muslim army, as indeed it was, ended up happening in 1191, thus ending the kingdom of Jerusalem, or as the movie would call it, the kingdom of heaven. This name actually was quite appropriate. Because according to the Europeans willing to fight and die for the cause, and especially according to their leaders, particularly religious leaders who encouraged them in this endeavor, that was indeed what was at stake. Fighting over a city that the early Christians actually fled from. A city that Jesus declared a woe over those who would stay in it when the battle of Rome came 40 years after his death. So how could the crusaders get it so wrong? How could they possibly think that the kingdom of heaven is is a city here on earth that we have to send millions of young men into terrible odds in order to retain? Well, it's pretty easy to throw stones at crusaders 800 years ago. We may be much more educated and culturally sensitive now, but the question is, do we understand the kingdom of heaven? The world around us certainly does not. Western society is constantly rejecting God himself, yet trying to create their own kingdom of heaven here on earth in a broken world of sin and pain that will simply never accommodate utopia. For our part as Christians, we want to better understand the kingdom of heaven. And this morning's passage, Jesus tells us three brief parables, even providing explanation in the last one. 
to help his listeners understand the kingdom of heaven. So follow along with me if you're reading the Bibles and the chairs. We're on page 819, and we're going to start with verse 44 and read through verse 50 of Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, and sorted the good into containers and threw away the bad. So it will be at the end of the age. The angels will come out and separate the evil from the righteous and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. These are our parables regarding the kingdom of heaven this morning. The treasure in the field, the pearl of great value, and the net of fish. With the last one, Jesus providing a very specific explanation. But in order to start considering each of these parables, we have to make sure we understand what we're talking about. What does Christ mean by the kingdom of heaven? Matthew was very captured by this reference and terminology. Matthew uses the phrase kingdom of heaven over 30 times in his gospel. Do you know how many times that same phrase appears in the rest of scripture? None. None. Now that doesn't mean that Matthew is doing his own thing and we can't really define the term, but it does mean we need to dig a little deeper. It's true that a number of these occurrences happen within parables. So that makes it difficult to define since Jesus is assuming the definition when he says the kingdom of heaven is like, right? But Jesus also used the phrase in another of other circumstances. First, when Jesus begins his ministry, he appears on the scene and he announces the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is here. He is calling people to repentance. Next, the phrase appears a handful of times in what we know as the Sermon on the Mount. Twice in the section we call the Beatitudes, where Jesus tells the crowd that both the poor in spirit and those who suffer for righteousness will inherit the kingdom of heaven. The other Sermon on the Mount references are all focused on getting access to the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. And in chapter 18, the well-known verse, unless you turn and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus lays out the kingdom of heaven as, as an idea of where everyone should want to go, but not everyone is allowed in. When Mark and Luke, who also include parables in their gospels, relate some of these same ones, they quote Jesus as saying the kingdom of God, which is essentially the same thing. But what do we mean when we talk about a kingdom? Being in a country like we are now, we don't often think of this because we're citizens in a country that is by the people, for the people. We the people, right? That's our country. It's not a kingdom. But a kingdom contemplates subjects. A kingdom has subjects. Because being a subject means you are subject. You are not self-directed. Instead, being part of God's kingdom means that you are not your own. You were bought with a price. Scripture reminds us the price of Christ's blood on the cross. Now, if you reject God as king, that certainly doesn't change the fact that he is God of the universe. But it does change your standing before him. That's why the kingdom of heaven brings into view both salvation as well as judgment, both covered in our passage today. So we're first considering the kingdom of heaven and salvation, and our first two parables drive home this point. So let's review them now. Short verses, here is what it says in verse 44 again. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. So with parables, we want to carefully read and apply, but we don't want to overread. Parables were told to drive home a singular lesson, right? They were not intended to, as, a, as some sort of universal application or illustration of truth, as in, there's no special reason that it's in a field. There's no really significance in the man hiding it. What is significant is that a man finds a hidden treasure. He immediately commits himself to it. It doesn't bother him that he has to give up everything he has because he's getting the treasure that he found. But the man didn't expect to find it. It appears that he wasn't searching for treasure at all. He found it hidden in a field. He just stumbled upon it. <clears throat> Unexpected treasure. And that is the way it often happens. That is the way it often happens for those who come to follow Jesus. Completely unexpected. Just think of our most prolific author of letters in the New Testament, Saul of Tarsus. And to listen to how his personal friend Luke relates the story in Acts, starting in verse 1. Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus, so that he found any belonging to the way, which is what they called the followers of Jesus, men or women, he might bring them bound back to Jerusalem. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice say to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, 
Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. So then we have this interchange with this poor saint named Ananias, who's thrust into the middle of this situation because God tells him to go to Saul. And Ananias is like, hey, I know this guy, and he hates us. So now you're telling me I'm supposed to go come out of hiding, make myself known and seen, and go to where he is actually staying. We were hiding from him. Thankfully, Ananias goes, and Paul is cured of his blindness. And then what does Paul do? The one who is ready to catch and imprison followers of Jesus in Damascus? Listen to this in verse 20. Immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogues, saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And he has not come here. Has he not come here for this purpose to bring back those bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, confounding the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Amazing. Paul starts his journey trying to hunt down Christians. They know, and they're afraid of him. And suddenly he's confronted by Jesus on the road to Damascus. He didn't see that coming, did he? Unexpected treasure. Fast forward a few chapters for another unlikely candidate for salvation. You've got Paul again. Now he's with Silas. They're in Philippi. They confront a slave girl with an unclean spirit and drive it out. And as a result, the owners are furious because she was making them good money. So they incite the magistrates against Paul and Silas. And you have this in verse 22, chapter 16. The crowd joined in attacking Paul and Silas, and the magistrates tore off their garments and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they had afflicted many blows on them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them in the inner prison and fastened their feet in the stocks. The jailer, a hired thug of the Roman authority, fulfills the orders, treats them like he would any other criminal, putting them in stocks, and then he puts them in the most secure part of the prison, probably pretty unnecessary for unarmed missionaries. But that doesn't deter Paul and Silas because they have something more valuable than freedom. They have the treasure of Christ. So they're singing at midnight, and everyone can hear them. And then God causes an earthquake to hit Philippi, and the prison is destroyed. And this poor jailer, he must think the gods are against him, because a prison destroyed by an earthquake in which the prisoners escape means certain punishment for him, and he cannot face it. So even though he's got a family at home, he decides to take his own life. Verse 27, the jailer woke, saw the prison doors were open, drew his sword, about to kill himself, supposing the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in. Trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. He brought them out and said, sirs, what must I do to be saved? So they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And listen to this result. They spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. 
He took them that same hour of the night, washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once along with his whole family. Then he brought them up into his house and set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he believed in God. The jailer and his family found an unexpected treasure. He didn't go into work at the prison that night pursuing the kingdom of heaven. He probably didn't even know much about it at all, but he found it. The suicidal Philippian jailer found the treasure. Maybe you are here today as a brother and sister in Christ, and you can attest to the same phenomenon. I wasn't looking for Jesus at all. I thought the Bible was a bunch of fairy tales. And then through a circumstance or a person or a thought that I had that I can't escape, suddenly you stumble upon the truth and you realize you can't get enough of it. And the things that formerly grabbed your attention and had their grip on you suddenly don't anymore, at least not in the same way. You were happy to give them up. Enjoy you gave up these things and got the treasure of Christ and salvation instead. Praise the Lord. But that isn't how it works for everyone, is it? The treasure isn't always unexpected. Because as Jesus continues talking, he tells another parable. It goes a little bit differently. Read along with me. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had and bought it. Jesus is clearly intending to contrast these very two, these very short illustrations. So in this case, we have a merchant who sounds like he's in the precious jewel business. His business is actually looking for fine pearls. That's what he does. He's been trained to find them and knows the value of what he's looking for. And now he's found a pearl of such great value that he sells all that he has in order to get it. Now, this is a point where I just want to remind us about parables. Because I don't want us to get caught up in thinking, wait, why does a merchant sell everything he has to buy one product he doesn't want to sell? That sounds like a very poor businessman. I'll, I'll grant that. That does sound like a poor businessman. But that's not the point, right? Just like, why is the guy in the field walking through the field? What, what's he doing? Is he trespassing? How is he in the field? Is he renting it? Why is he in the field? Not relevant. It's a parable. It's just an illustration, right? So these guys aren't real guys. It's just an example that we're being given. So this merchant, the idea of the merchant, the idea of giving all to get what you're searching for is Jesus' point. So that's what's happening here. He's not a confused businessman. No, this is a parable. It's a lesson to show us that, though, that there are those who are seeking the kingdom, they are pursuing it. They're searching it out. They're looking for the truth. They're unsatisfied with partial truths or substitutes. They are seeking the truth that answers all their questions and needs. And this is of such great value to them that there is no other purpose in life but to find it. Like our first example, the best way I know how to, how to, how to trot this out is, is to look and consider what it says in God's word about situations just like this. And I'll start in Luke 2. Don't need to turn there. I just want to relate to you. This is Jesus showing up in the temple as a little baby with his parents. And there's some people there. And one of them 
is a prophetess named Anna, daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She's advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and praying night and day. Coming up that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. Anna, a woman of Jewish descent who's also named a prophetess. She was in the temple, worshiping with fasting, prayer, and day and night. But you need to think about who that makes Anna. Thinking about what was typical in those days, probably married at a young age in her teens, maybe. Married seven years to her husband, and then he tragically dies. That puts her somewhere in her 20s. Now she's 84. What has she been doing for the last 60 years? In the temple, every day, prayer and fasting, being in the temple. She's just hanging out in the temple. I think some people probably thought she was a little crazy. A crazy old widow hanging out in the temple all the time. Anna. But she knows what she wants. She's not some empty-headed religious hermitess. She's waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. And now it's come. And she speaks of Jesus' arrival to all the others who are waiting for the same thing. What life does Anna have outside of her faith in the Lord? That's like the only way she can be identified. Who is she? She's that woman who's in the temple praising the Lord, constantly praying and fasting, seeking the redemption of Jerusalem. That's who she is. She gave up everything else. Or we can consider another unlikely candidate. And I'll say, let's, let's go ahead and turn to this passage in Acts chapter 10. The very first verse is where we're going to start. Acts 10, those who want to turn along. I'll start reading. At Caesarea... There was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort, a devout man who feared God with all his household, gave alms generously to the people, and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror. What is it, Lord? He said to him, your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon who is called Peter. So he sends for some servants, tells them what he saw, sends them on their way to find Peter in Joppa. Peter, meanwhile, has his own encounter with the Lord and is assured that he should accompany these representatives of the occupation back to Caesarea. So Peter grabs some companion and goes with these guys back to Cornelius. This is what Cornelius says in response a few verses later. I was praying at my house at the ninth hour, and behold, a man stood before me in bright clothing and said, Cornelius, your prayer has been heard and your alms have been remembered before God. Send therefore to Joppa and ask for Simon, who's called Peter. He's lodging in the house of Simon, a tanner by the sea. So I sent for you at once, and you've been kind enough to come. Now, therefore, we are all here in the presence of God to hear all that you've been commanded by the Lord. 
So Cornelius has brought a crowd in on top of it to hear what does Peter have to say. This centurion, he doesn't even have the Jewish background. He doesn't even know the heritage of the Israelites. But he knows and believes in God and is pursuing the truth. And God appears to him to bring him together with Peter. And we know this worked out great in the long run because it says after Peter preached, the Holy Spirit came into all who were listening, like a Gentile Pentecost. What a glorious salvation story of a man in pursuit of the good news as if he's seeking a precious jewel. Now, maybe this sort of story is more like your own testimony. You knew there was truth and value to be found, and you sought after it. And God, through Jesus, enlightened your eyes to see, and you came into the kingdom of heaven, acknowledging who you were before God's holiness and recognizing Christ as the only way to him. So now we've seen the contrast between these two parables. And clearly that's what Jesus was aiming at as he related them. The kingdom of heaven is like this, and the kingdom of heaven is also like this. At the same time, the kingdom of heaven in both of these illustrations has an essential element of connection. And that's what I'm calling the value proposition. Clearly this is in view as Jesus relates these stories and uses similar language. Look again quickly at our verses, and I'll just fly over them to show the comparison. Verse 44, in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. Then verse 46, on finding one pearl of great value, went and sold all that he had and bought it. So what do these two guys have in common? Pretty obvious, right? They sold all that they had. Now, the way I used to think about it is kind of, Makes sense, but I don't think it's really the spirit of what's going on here, right? So the way I used to think about this was, okay, the field, the guy walks through the field, he's gonna, he, he wants to buy that field. So what does he do? He goes home and he's like, I need to figure out how much money I have because I got to get that field. So he starts by digging through his couch cushions and you know, looking in the tent corners and digging out as much change as he can. And he realizes, I don't have that much, so I need, to, I need to count up everything. And as he goes through it all, realizes, okay, this is how much I'm worth, it's going to be, you know, three talents, two denarii, and 15 shekels. That's what I got. Goes back and finds out the price of the field. And would you believe it? The price of the field is three talents, two denarii, and 15 shekels. Perfect. It's a perfect price. That's how I used to think about this. It's not terrible. But I don't think that's the spirit of what's going on here. It's not about matching a perfect price and there being a serendipity of some sort. But rather, but rather it's about selling all that you have. Because in reality, the man in the field or the merchant, their value could be twice that of what they need to purchase that pearl or purchase that field. They don't care. They no longer have need for all those other things. All that he had, it was no longer a draw for him. I'm not concerned. I'll pay you twice what the field costs. I could care less. I want the treasure in the field. That's all I want. That's what I care about. I'm leaving the rest of it behind. I don't need an exact price. Take it all. He was happy to get rid of that in the acquisition of the treasure. He wasn't concerned about what he then considered junk. Whatever things he had as gain, he now considered loss. 
That's the Apostle Paul's words in Philippians 3. Whatever gain I have, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. That is the perspective of one who's given up all they've had for a treasure that they have found. But not everyone is willing to do this. Remember the rich young ruler? Yes, just, just a few pages over in Matthew. Just flip to it if you want. Chapter 19, Jesus encounters this young man who wants to follow him. Seems, like, seems just like the merchant. In fact, in real life, he probably was a merchant. Pursuing the kingdom. But Jesus tells him, after he asks him, what do I still lack? Jesus replies in verse 21, if you would be perfect, go. Sell what you possess and give it to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Come follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. The simple reality of this encounter is that this young man doesn't see the treasure. He doesn't see the pearl. He doesn't recognize. His eyes are blinded by the idol of his possessions. And we can make the same mistake. It doesn't have to be about money or, or, or stuff. Our idols are simply whatever prevent us from giving up all things to gain Christ. Maybe instead, the idol for you is power or, or personal glory. Or maybe the idol is, is your kids, family. Maybe it's having everything your way. Maybe it's your own personal quest for meaning through your career. Or it could be something, honestly, much less valued by our culture, but for whatever reason, it's an idol for you. It really can be anything. Anything that eclipses your view of the real treasure. And with these thoughts, considering how idols prevent people from seeing the treasure clearly, Jesus transitions to a third parable, which introduces the concept of judgment. Look with me here. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a net thrown into the sea, gathering fish of every kind. When it was full, men drew it ashore, sat down, sorted the good into containers, threw away the bad. And this one, Jesus explains immediately afterwards, saying, so it will be at the end of the age. Angels will come out, separate the evil from the righteous, throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. This is a unique parable. It's a simple illustration. And when Jesus finishes, he explains it in a very matter of fact. So it will be at the end of the age. Basically, at the end of time, this is what's going to happen. Angels are going to pluck out the evil, throw them in the fiery furnace. Unlike most of Jesus' other parables, this one is fully focused on an element of the kingdom of heaven we do not dwell on very much. But Jesus has no problem with it. For the many things the kingdom of heaven is, it is also 
about judgment. Now, please note, as I continue, I am taking no liberties whatsoever with this passage to say this. These are all Jesus' words. His statement of the kingdom via parable and then his confirmation via this interpretation is that this is about judgment. This is really about a place that we call hell, the place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. There are two things about judgment this passage makes clear. That the kingdom of heaven is one, first, that judgment is certain. And two, that judgment is horrible. Let's start with the first, judgment is certain. Jesus brings this up as a normal reality. It's just like fishermen bringing in their daily catch of fish, right? Like all dragnet fishing, they're going to wind up with good ones and some not so good ones. So they separate out the ones worth keeping and they throw away the bad ones. This really isn't coming out of the blue. Jesus has just talked about two ways to think about the kingdom of heaven. And he starts this third one with saying again, right? So the idea, the idea of his teaching, right? Here's what the kingdom of heaven is like. Here's one way to look at it. Here's another way to look at it. And this is yet another perspective. All real, all accurately portraying the kingdom of heaven. And this actually isn't the only parable where this comes up. Just before our passage, there is the parable of the wheat and the tares. Jesus says almost the exact same thing, starting in verse 40. He says, just as the weeds are gathered and burned with fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all causes of sin, all lawbreakers, and throw them into the fiery furnace. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So it will be. Jesus says it twice in an explanation of two different parables, plainly what will happen. It's no longer parabolic. He's no longer telling a story. He's actually speaking of what will actually happen. The angels will actually gather all causes of sin and lawbreakers, all evil, and throw them into an actual fiery furnace. There will actually be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the question for us is, are we clear on the certainty of this judgment? Are we living our lives in view of the reality of this truth? Do I live like I believe it? Do you? So along with the certainty with which this comes we need to recognize how horrible this judgment is. Now, I confess to you, this language is difficult to read. It's like the reading version of nails on a chalkboard for me. Because saying that the evil will be thrown into a fiery furnace where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth is not something that we like to think about. And I really don't like to talk about it. But Jesus says it twice in one chapter in Matthew. And I am not being faithful if I do not proclaim what he has to say. So, so if you sit here today thinking, you know, I'm just going to figure out this whole Jesus thing on my deathbed. Or if you think, you know what, I, 
I kind of know better than the Bible. It's just a dusty old book. It doesn't really have any meaning. I'm just going to reject the word of God. And by doing so, rejecting the one who gives you every breath of life, then friend, this is what you face unless you repent and believe the gospel. Unless you pursue salvation found only in the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't necessarily understand exactly what agony it means for there to be weeping and gnashing of teeth or what sort of uh, illustrative reality a fiery furnace is. But that's not all we have. I mean, the book of Revelation, referring to the exact same judgment as Jesus when he's talking about this, the end of the age, calls it a lake of fire. Interestingly, Jesus, within Matthew, talking in other parables, uses another term. His term is outer darkness. And each time he uses the term, three times in three parables, it's followed by the same words, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So the starting point of understanding hell, which is such a wickedly, graphically misunderstood term today, but the idea of hell, the starting point of understanding this is to understand that the fire and darkness being spoken of are the opposite of who our God is. He is light and he is the water of life. There's a river that flows from God's throne in the New Jerusalem, and it's called the river of life. And there is no need for sun in the New Jerusalem and the new heavens and earth because Jesus is our light. So what does it mean for hell to have this fire and darkness? and the weeping and gnashing of teeth? Well, remember in heaven, there, there is no weeping or mourning or crying or pain anymore. So the choice is really there before us. It's the glory of God's presence with light and water giving life to us. Or it's the agony of his absence. The choice of the treasure is the glory of God's presence or the agony of his absence. So if you are within reach of my voice and you are not one whose treasure is Christ, then I appeal to you with the most inviting clarity that I can muster. Hell is real. Jesus talks about it. Numerous times recorded just here in Matthew. And his warning is that if you reject him, if you treasure what is outside of him, then your reward will be outside of him. The fiery furnace, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. But Jesus, he offers salvation. He offers you salvation without any prerequisite. He offers you the greatest treasure and pearl, and that is himself. Don't spend any more of your life chasing after worthless things, pursuing the vanity and foolishness and emptiness of what the world has to offer. Instead, 
flee to Christ. This is the kingdom of heaven applied in the here and now. For the follower of this world's idols and philosophies, it's a call to repentance and taking hold of the greatest treasure. And for the believer, for the Christian, what does the Christian gain from these parables? Well, we need to step back and assess the man in the field and the merchant of pearls. Does our love for the kingdom, our love of Christ, does it look like that? Does it look like leaving everything behind to follow Jesus? That nothing is more important, whether temporary or lifelong. What this passage caused me to do was to just play back the last couple weeks of my life. So journey along with me and consider these categories from your perspective. I think of the way I spent my time. How much time was for my own selfish or even my own family's selfish pursuits? How often did I spend my time and energy seeking the good of others, serving others, especially the good of the gospel for others? How much of my time was spent talking about my greatest treasure and my place in the kingdom of heaven? Nor I think of the way I treat those I know, my family, my coworkers, my neighbors, many of them who do not know Christ and will spend eternity in hell unless they repent. And those I don't know, so many people in the airport, on the plane, my Lyft drivers, clients, people at a cafe or restaurant. Now, how about the way I spend my money? Have I been generous? Have I been thoughtful? Have I acknowledged God's goodness to me at every swipe of the card? In summary, I guess, would I be identified as someone who has given up everything for the treasure of the kingdom of heaven? What about you? There were millions of lives lost over three centuries of the Crusades. And it should remind us that we as humans can so easily misunderstand the kingdom of heaven. Maybe we, in our time, aren't misunderstanding it as much as we are simply undervaluing it. Not necessarily in our words, we're too smart for that, but in actually how we live out our lives. One day, what we have valued will be tested and its worth will be revealed. Let's be those people who continue from here on to the future, who continue every day to shed the impurity and the wrong ideas about the kingdom and instead Pursue a God who we know is of infinite worth. Let's pray. Lord God in heaven, we rejoice in the truth 
and we review these parables, these short verses, words that Jesus spoke 2,000 years ago to those who would listen. And we understand its application. We understand what it means to be part of the kingdom of heaven. And Lord, I pray that we would be pressed in to our hearts with these truths and that we would have joy to rid ourselves of all the things that are holding us back. Lord, I pray that this word would just be implanted deep in our hearts, that we would go forward with it in our minds and hearts, rejoicing in the truth. I pray this in the name of Christ Jesus, our treasure. Amen.